for those of us who work in senior living, or if you have a loved one who needs additional care, oftentimes the starting point for that is a trip to the hospital. So today we are having a discussion with James Meenan, who's the director of case management at Virginia Hospital Center. We're going to get an overview of the inner workings of a case management department during the COVID-19 crisis and how senior serving professionals, families, and loved ones can best serve people before, during, and after a transition to the hospital. This was an amazing conversation with lots of questions from the audience. So let's get going and meet James. And uh, he's already got questions and he hasn't even started talking. Um, uh, James, uh, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you guys for recognizing Case Management Week. And I'm sure there's plenty of folks uh, in the audience that are case managers, have been case managers or know a case manager. So please, uh, you know, I extend my my gratitude to you and and please do the same if, if you have an opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Um, hey, hey um, James, tell us tell us a little bit about how how did you get into this profession and land there at Virginia Hospital Center? Tell, give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to I'll try to be quick, uh, just because I know there's, we've got a lot. But the short of it was, um, uh, my medical background was in the military. I was a Navy corpsman, and I served with uh, the Marine Corps Infantry for about five years as emergency uh, medical technician in the field. And I got out uh, in 2003 and was studying uh, health systems management at George Mason. And I was working in the ER actually at Virginia Hospital Center at night. And when I was getting closer to wrapping up my undergrad, um, you know, I was asked to apply for a certain position and it led to an interview with Ruth McGough, who was the director of case management here for 30 oh, yeah. years. You know, an amazing um, licensed clinical social worker, a mentor in my life still to this day. I spoke to her, I think, two days ago. And um, and so I had I didn't know much about case management at the time, but um, uh, my naval training uh, allowed me to, you know, clinically meet the needs of utilization review, communicating with the docs, the nurses and the discharge planning. I found I had a passion for I really enjoyed working with our patients and their families. And I was assigned to a, uh, an acute pulmonary rehab unit, which was a vent weaning unit. So we would electively take invented patients, um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, traumas, and we would wean them. Uh, Larry Stein from Pulmonary Medical Associates, Dr. Stein was our medical director, amazing doctor. And we would get these folks into acute rehab and they'd come in on a stretcher and they'd walk out of here. It was amazing. I also managed our CV surgery unit, and then I did medical uh, discharge planning before I was asked to become the assistant director. And then when Ruth was transitioning out, um, they asked me to take on the role of director. So I've been here all in all 15 years. I had the opportunity to study health policy in grad school at night, um, get my certification in case management. I've been the director for about the last nine years. And um, uh, and, and I'll throw it out there just because it, it's going to play into some of our discussion. Um, it's very odd, but I'm also the director of our outpatient lab for about the last three years. But when we mm. talk about COVID and testing and our partners in the community, I think it's going to, it's wow. going to make some sense. Um, I really enjoy it. Uh, the, the community partnership, the folks that are in this audience, um, I found that I really have a passion, you know, connecting people to that next transition because we know uh, if we provide the best possible care here at Virginia Hospital Center, which I believe we do, there may be circumstances, social determinants of health, if you will, that no matter what we do here, once a patient goes to the community, it can all fall apart. And so we're, we're really dependent on those relationships and warm handoffs to make sure our patients from a continuity standpoint and full spectrum of health get what they need. Great. Uh, very succinct. So, so let's... Um, what uh, what we can do here is let's uh, kind of transition to you know the topics of the day. Questions are coming in, but let's before we start diving into those. I, I think what 
a lot of us are are wondering is sort of how does a case management department work, um, the broad strokes, but more importantly, sort of sharing what went on. I mean, I, I talk about being on the front lines during COVID-19, being in a hospital and managing your department is uh, right in the bullseye. Um, we'd love to sort of hear what's going on, what went on, what's going on, and what do you see in the future? Yeah, I, I thought I'd jump right into kind of what what we were looking at in January and in uh, early February. <clears throat> and, um, you know, obviously I'm an employee of Virginia Hospital Center, but I am absolutely uh, proud of the the hospital, the hospital leadership, how well they kept us stocked on PPE, um, how well they kept us informed, which, which continues to this date on a very, very regular basis from our leadership. Um but a huge, huge recognition goes out to our operations and supply chain. Uh, we never were short on any PPE, any masks. And so uh, from a confidence standpoint from our staff, keeping them safe, that was so important. Um, so, you know, back in January, you know, I think all of us had questions, right? I think at that time, things we're starting to pick up on the West Coast. Uh, if my memory serves me right, it was Seattle, Los Angeles, those large cities that were starting to see COVID in the, in the States before it came across to the East Coast and really, really hit New York City. And, um, you know, one of the things I do in the community, uh, I'm on the board at ASPAN, Arlington Street People's Assistance Network, which is not a homeless shelter, but a homeless services center. Uh, it's amazing, and and I'd love to share that at a future date uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it. But in my role there, because we're working with safety net providers for our patients that are homeless, have needs, um, you know, we could we could see the writing on the wall. It was it was going to be coming to us. So we, so I I actually wrote you know went on LinkedIn and reached out to um, the uh, the Union Seattle Union Gospel Mission, one of the biggest, probably the most comprehensive homeless services center in the country out in Seattle to say, hey, how are you guys managing? What are you doing? Because we're going to need to get there. And um, and so I put uh, Betsy France, our, our president and executive um, uh, leader for ASPAN, in contact with them. And then we brought in Arlington County to talk through uh, what eventually turned out to be utilizing some of the hotel space uh, to uh, limit exposure because it was right around uh, cherry blossom time, right? So DC is usually slammed with visitors, but now all the hotels are dealing with uh, low vacancy. And so we said, well, hey, why don't we have the county engage these uh, hotel providers in Arlington to see if we can't work out a deal uh, for reduced rates. And, and that worked out really well. It actually worked out for the hospital too, for first line providers so that we could have some of our high risk nurses, doctors that didn't want to go home and potentially expose their families and they were given free rooms to our, our, uh, our team. So that, that was awesome too. But, but then to, to bring it closer back to case management, you know, staffing's everything, you know, if we don't have a happy engaged, a team that feels secure, then we can't provide the best care to our patients. And so it was important for myself, for our assistant director, David Ogilvy to immediately pull in our team together, talking, uh, and many of us have young children, right? And so the thought was, all right, schools are going to start closing. What are we going to do? And so we we quickly changed our staffing model. You know, we're responsible for utilization review, discharge planning, and social services. And we implemented telehealth quickly with tablets, you know, HIPAA encrypted. And we found ways to utilize staff that just couldn't come in to keep them working, to keep them employed, but to also keep them operational from home. And, and then everyone else that could be here was here. And, and that worked. That worked out really well. And we started that in February before things started shutting down. And, um, and, and I'm happy to say we were able to, uh, you know, keep all of our team members on. And, and I think they, you know, they would tell you they're fortunate for the, you know, just the support here at the hospital they're getting. But, you know, family comes first before we can help others. And before we can support one another, we have to make sure the kids, our family uh, are in good shape. So there were times when they had to, to take care of their loved ones or travel. And we, we absolutely accommodated that because it was the right thing to do. Um, so then we went into, you know, the creative staffing and then infection prevention, making sure when 
our case managers did go into rooms, they had all the proper training. So that meant getting everyone, um, you know, reaffirming, making sure everyone was comfortable with PPE, donning and doffing, uh, testing when they needed it. And our infection prevention team led by Dr. Rohit Modak uh, just really has been knocking out of the park. We also brought in the county health department early in January with all leadership. And that played into our post-acute partners, most notably our SNFs, our assisted livings, our group homes. And so um, Evelyn Popple from Arlington County uh, Health Department was here with us before things really got heavy. And we just talked through, hey, let, let's talk about how we're going to communicate every morning. And we started getting data from all of the post-acute partners. We obviously were sharing our data with the community because what we realized early was that things could get really tough if all of the local assisted livings, nursing homes, group homes had outbreaks and had to send their patients to the ER. That, that would overwhelm uh, an emergency room. That would overwhelm a hospital. So we immediately started partnering with them. We also started bringing them rapid COVID testing. And so uh, we, we stood up the first COVID testing site in Northern Virginia down on North Quincy Street. Um, I, in my outpatient lab role, I actually stood that up and managed it for about four months before we handed it off to Quest. But what we did was we took nurses into Manor Care, um, Cherrydale, um, Jefferson, the Sunrise Facilities, Brookdale, and then the uh, community residence group homes, and also A-SPAN, the shelters. We also stood up a walkthrough site with Arlington Free Clinic down on Columbia Pike to give as much access to testing so that people could isolate in place before it became a problem and before they had to rush to the ER. And we feel, we feel confident with those partnerships, we were able to really manage our flow well. Um, then now, uh, James, forgive me for in interrupting, but just out of curiosity, how many, how many case managers, how many, how many staff in your case management department at your hospital? Yeah, we have a 30-member team, and I, 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 I uh, like to have that split, 15 RNs, 15 master's trained social workers, and we have about four licensed clinical social workers on staff. Okay, great. So, so uh, you know, during the week, we allow uh, four of our nurses, a, four nurses a week work remotely from home uh, to do the utilization review, and that's on a non-COVID week. Uh, what we did was we got creative with how, who was off and we found ways for social workers to do that based on their family needs. Uh, and, and again, with iPads and with encrypted interviews, we were able to, to do assessments uh, as were our, our docs and nurses that, that needed to do that. Um, you know, I guess then I, I'll, I'll, st I'll start talking to the, um, the challenges we faced with the disposition, you know, the, uh, as the outbreak started, a lot of the post-acute facilities were shut by the Department of Health, you know, for good reason, not, not any fault of their own. They said, hey, look, this just is not a safe environment. We need to get we need to get things under control. And so a lot of partnering with the health department, the local subacute skilled nursing facilities, long-term care and assisted livings. So what that meant was we were sending, we weren't sending any patients to those facilities. We we're sending them all home. Uh, you know, for long-term care residents that lived in these facilities, they were allowed back. But for folks that came in and needed rehab, uh, they were going home with rehab. The, um, you know, the hospitals experienced a sharp decline in um, scheduled surgeries, elective surgeries, because it was the right thing to do. We didn't want to put people at risk. And so what that did for our acuity in the hospitals, it shifted it from a balance of some really sick patients to some low acuity, healthy patients who had scheduled surgeries that are in and out to now everyone's really sick. It's just a, a high acuity. We saw that with our case mix index spike. And, um, and so we rallied as a team to say, okay, with our physical therapy, occupational therapy, our physicians to say, you know, we need to get these folks home. And, you know, there was some silver linings there. There was, there was additional challenges that a lot of the private duty aides, whether with the, the home skilled agencies or in the facilities, were not able to uh, 
they weren't available. And, and that was for a number of different reasons that I heard from the agencies and they were understandable. And so finding private duty aides to be with folks was tough during that time. What we did find is that because a lot of family members were not working, they were home and they were able to kind of take on responsibilities they hadn't had before. And that was some of the silver lining that we could safely get people home, get them the care needed. And, um, and that limited readmissions to, you know, keeping people at home with family. Uh, how that impacted our partners, I believe, visitor restrictions, which are still in place to most extents. Uh, nobody was coming in the building. Uh, we, we limited family visits even to uh, patients that were actively dying or, or patients that were actively birthing. Uh, that's, that's relaxed a bit. And so we do allow limited visitors in to see patients, but for our post-acute partners that often will come to, um, you know, meet with case managers, what have you, that just doesn't happen. We do allow our hospice nurses, our hospice nurse liaisons that are at the bedside in, and that's for all hospice agencies, but but that's been a challenge. So uh, I think most folks, at least in this region, know we use the Aiden electronic referral system, and, and that's I think that was a good thing because we've been using it for about four years. That's how we communicate with all of our post-acute partners, and that hasn't changed that dynamic. Um, and big, uh, the Aiden electronic uh, referral system, Just I, I just want to kind of catch you on that one. It's mm -hmm. um, So the process for a vendor being included in that system, uh, you don't have to go into great detail, but what I know it's a question that's going to come up. Yeah, it's free. So that's the important thing. It's available to everyone. It's A-I-D-I-N. And um, I, you know, I, I was telling Steve before we started that I, for years, every Tuesday at 930, I set aside time and meet with our post-acute partners to talk about quality outcomes. Um, I'll let folks do their own research and reach out if they're interested. But the short of it is it's a quality-driven post-acute referral service for just about every disposition we use. Okay. And it's free. You can sign up. Um, and that's how we provide options to our patients. And do folks sign up at the myaden.com or do they go to a Virginia hospital site? Yep, myaden.com. Okay. I just they have a Medicare license. They're almost all automatically enrolled regardless. So it's it's a it's a great tool. Uh, it's it's spreading across the country quite a bit fast now, but it's it's something that also is helping hospitals meet the new condition of participation on providing uh, quality metrics to patients at the time of discharge. Okay. And I, I dropped that into chat, everybody, so you can access that on, on your own. Okay. Sorry to derail you there. I knew that was going to be a, a hot topic. Um, yeah. I think the last thing that I was going to mention before I, you know, I opened it up was that, you know, uh, our behavioral health population, which... Um, you know, on a good day is is a population that I believe is underserved. I think it's it's one of our greatest opportunities in this country. It became incredibly more underserved. What I mean by that is the state facilities, at least in Virginia, at some point had to shut down. And so uh, they weren't allowing certain admissions in. They certainly weren't allowing COVID admissions in. So you know, to give you a perspective for us in our emergency room, and we have an inpatient behavioral health psychiatric unit and separately an inpatient addictions and detox unit, um, but we're full constantly. And so when patients present and we don't have beds, we do bed searches throughout the state. And for patients that are detained uh, for uh, mental health reasons, the state facilities locally here in Fairfax's Northern Virginia Mental Health Institute is, is the solution or the, the resource. And, and so that for about a month or two was, uh, was not an option. And so the ER on a good day has three emergency mental health patients boarding in our ER when it's a non-COVID day. And it was getting up to eight to 10 a day uh, during COVID. And so that became overwhelming. Uh, CMS and the payers relaxed some of the rules and that they allowed us to treat mental health patients if they could be safely treated on medical units, meaning non-secured locked units. And that and that's still in place now. So if we need to do that, we do do that. Um, but it's, you know, it's not the, it's not the standard of care. And so, uh, so with that, um, I guess I was going to 
you know, see if there's any questions. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and okay, guys here, we're opening up the gates. We've already got some in there, but if you've got a question, type it in or a comment, type it in and then, uh, uh, or raise your hand and I'll, I'll bring you on. So let's take them in the order that they came in. Fred Jung asks, uh, what types of CEU-based education do you think would be of greatest interest to hospital case managers as a mean means to get them to listen and learn more about the local community aging life care geriatric care managers? And uh, Fred is uh, he's with Blue Ridge Elder Care Advisors. He's an aging life care manager. So, in terms of, and I know every hospital is different, but like if a provider wanted to give you and your team CEUs, is that something that is done? And what are some of the topics? Yeah, we've done that sparingly. It's it's difficult. You know, um, we have a, a, a weekly department meeting uh, every, every Tuesday afternoon. And, you know, as you can imagine, for the last several months, that's been done similar to how we're doing this now. And we, um, you know, we go over, uh, you know, important messages from leadership. And we also discuss training, things that are going on in the department. And we also open the floor for challenging cases. Um, you know, I'm rounding every day, supporting the team. And we also have lunches every Wednesday. Uh-oh. Um, let's, we're buffering here. Oh boy. Let's get James back on board. There yeah, you go. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. You you got caught in a um, in a rip current there. <laughs> okay. So uh, the, I guess the short of it is, it's tough to do that, you know, because a CEU to you know has to be a full hour. I actually just recently started talking with um, you know a member of ACMA, um, and and um, providing that as a resource to our staff is what I've taking the decision to do so uh contracting with compass with an acma and that's going over the really you know the the regulatory the 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 resources they need to learn to be the strongest eliminate variants in practice but i think i hear what you're saying hey what about the the post-acute services in the community um I, i think it's valuable i think we need we need to know about that and i think if you can present that in a fashion where it's valuable to the workflow of the case manager Meaning, hey, you know, I'm going to have a patient in front of me and where does your organization, where does your service fit in and how does that help me as a case manager? That's what's going to make it most attractive. I think that's the best right. advice I think. And, and actually, Kate, Kate fielded a question via text from another aging life care manager and, and uh, they were curious is how do hospital case managers tend to work with aging life care managers and do you? Um, to work with aging life care managers? You know, the, the relationship that with the, the uh, you know, what I'll use my own kind of term of kind of like the private duty case management or the community-based, you know, it's, there, there are a couple that I can think of that are um, very good about communicating with us. And we usually like that ahead of time. Like, hey, I, I have a, a patient in the community you know, we're looking for help with X, Y, and Z. And I think whereas there's a lot that can be done in the community, some of the relationship or connections that we can provide uh, can be of assistance. I think what often, the way we often interact with them is patients here. And, and at some point we find out, we, we definitely like that proactive, hey, James, my, my uh, you know, your patient 521 is um, a client of mine. And here's what we're doing. Here's how we can help. You know, sometimes, uh, and this is not a blanket statement, so please don't interpret that way, but it's sometimes interpreted that um, maybe the community-based case manager kind of takes a hands-off approach and says, well, the, the hospital case manager has it. We'll let them deal with it. And and that's fine. That's what we're here for. But it's better if it's a collaborative approach because you already have that relationship with your client or patient which um, which they trust. You have that trust level. And so if we're giving them the same message and we're, we're working together, I think that's a better relationship. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you, you your comments prompted me from one of our panels many years ago. I think Ruth, Ruth McGough was on the panel. And um, 
I, there's two things that I'd, I'd love for you to share with the audience is the first is in general, where do discharges from your hospital go to? So that, that for the audience was kind of interesting because there was this sort of assumption that, oh, you know, they discharge to assisted living. And when they sort of gave the overall stats, it wasn't, it wasn't what the audience expected. And then the words of wisdom that were shared at that, and, and you just echoed it, is that guys, is that, and, and James, feel free to jump on this, is, is that, for example, if you have a client who is going to the hospital and is being admitted, one of the best things you can do is to reach out and make sure that the case management department knows you're attached to that client. Because a lot of times you guys will start thinking about where are they going to discharge to and, and not re realizing that they're either working with a home care agency, a case manager, or living in an assisted living or a retirement community. Yeah, and I'd add that the, the hospital case manager is going to be right on the pulse in those care coordination meetings, hearing from the doctor and the nurse as results come in. So if the disposition is changing, shifting, they're going to know before the family does. And so uh, establishing a good communication and relationship with them is going to, is going to allow you to be successful too. Yeah. But now where, where do you got, where are your external discharges? I know it's different in COVID. But in general, if you had to sort of look at the older adult uh, population that you're discharging, where do they generally go from the hospital? Yeah, yeah. No, that's something I keep my uh, my finger on top of constantly. And and um, and and again, this is something not to be interpreted the wrong way. It's just an initiative we've taken. You know, over the last five years, I'd say, and probably more aggressively over the last three years with patient specific. Um, groups, uh, heart failure being most notably, but I, you know, I have a dashboard every, every morning and I turn on my computer with Epic, the medical record, and it shows, it tells me how many patients went where uh, by percentage. So, um, you know, I can confidently say uh, about 78 to 80% of our patients go home. Um, about 11% go to subacute nursing homes. Um, and then uh, overwhelmingly, the, the rest will go home with home care. And then in very small numbers, the rest of the dispositions. And that's, that's, um, that's something that we, you know, intended, intend for. And that's, that's something that aligns with readmissions. We, you know, I've been studying readmissions for a long time and, and have done some things with the Mayo Clinic and gone out to, to Rochester to work on with them. And for the moment, at least, when we see patients go to subacute nursing facilities, we the data just is what it is. It, it parallels with readmissions, and so when we see less patients going to skilled nursing facilities, we see less patients readmitting to the hospital. And um, again, that's not to suggest that the nursing homes are doing a bad job, um, but there's inherent risk with everything, and and we believe you know patients for the most part want to be at home, and if there's ways we can do it to get them home safely, that's something that I'm constantly working with our nursing team members, our PTOT staff, our docs, because it's not, it's not one discipline that makes that happen. And obviously our families and patients, uh, and it's not right for everyone, right? There's going to be situations where it's necessary, uh, but I think we're seeing pretty clear signs from CMS and the, uh, the payers that they, you know, in the last year, they've changed reimbursement to the home care industry and also to the skilled nursing facilities, they're trying to get folks home as well. And, and, uh, and I think for the right reasons. Great. Okay. Let's see. Uh, Janet Grit says, how are hospitals helping patients with communication difficulties, such as stroke survivors who have aphasia during the pandemic when the families cannot visit? Yeah, a great question. So we, we were using, are still using you know, technology, iPads, communication for our patients, for family members if they can't be with them. Um, to, to be specific to the patient population you you identified, if someone's had a stroke, they have, you know, cognitive and, and uh, other, you know, limitations, getting them into rehab immediately is, is what we know is best practice. We do have an acute rehab program, a 20-bed unit on site, very similar to behavioral health. It's full all the time. So we're offering 
we're often um, engaging uh, competing programs. There's about five or six acute rehabs in the immediate 20 mile radius. And so getting those patients immediately to treatment to start that cognitive therapy and that rehabilitative therapy is, is what's in their best interest. Um, I've been working with a family actually the last several weeks, a, a younger woman in her late thirties um, who had a similar event and she wasn't quite ready for acute rehab. So the family was having a hard time. You know, she's so young. They said, geez, we don't want her to go to a nursing home. And, and so we sat down and we discussed everything and we said, let's, you know, being good advocates as, as the sister is and the, the father is, we said, let's get her over to one of the local skilled rehabs. It's, it's, you know, whether it was the insurance limitations or the fact that she just wasn't a candidate yet for acute rehab, let's said, let's get her improving even marginally to where she can be considered for acute rehab. So a couple of times a week, her sister and I talk, we get the therapy notes sent over. I sit down with our physiatrist in acute rehab and they're not allowed to go into that building. There's, there's, there's restrictions. And so what I did with their activity director at the facility is using iPad uh, to communicate. So that's, that's one example. I'm sure there are other, other modalities. Great. Um, okay. Let's see. Uh, um, somebody asked, and, and you talked about readmission is how does your team handle follow-up have, have the folks that you sent to home been readmitted? So some insight on what happens when somebody becomes readmitted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, readmissions are, are, are never going to be zero. That's, that's not the goal, but it's, it's to get them decrease as much as we can. And where we've seen success is uh, similar partnerships with you all in the post-acute partnership, but most notably with the providers. So what we've done with some, I mentioned heart failures, we've uh, blended that transition from the hospital to home with the providers. So for instance, our cardiology group, our internal medicine uh, for that heart failure population, you know, we brought in the pharmacists, the nurses, the docs, and we do bedside education. We then have a member from the, the physician scheduling team, uh, who's a nurse who does education, schedule them for their appointments and is engaging them every week at home. Um, we're adding on services that are necessary, but we're making sure they get to those appointments within three days of discharge, cardiology, internal medicine. So this is just an example for heart failure. We saw a 25% reduction in heart failure readmissions once we started that. And, and that's that's been one way of doing it. You know, there's, there's other populations we're focusing on right now. Sepsis is huge in the country. It's the number one readmission diagnosis in Virginia. Uh, it is for this hospital. And that's something that we're tackling. It's a little bit tougher because it's, uh, you know, when you're identifying what qualifies for sepsis, it's a little, it's a lot different than CHF, but we're taking similar approaches to making sure that we're handing off and transitioning care with the providers in the community. But we, we do have readmissions. Our, our whole house, um, all cause, all read, all payer readmission is 9%. Our, our Medicare all cause readmissions is 11.5%. Man, and, and you while really that have ever, a, you have a great dashboard. While there. Yeah, while while it's strong, it's good. It's 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 something that you know, you know, the way we hold ourselves accountable is observed over expected year over year. So um, that's good, maybe this year, but it's not going to be good enough for next year. So we have to improve year over year, and that's why we're constantly, you know, going back to the drawing board to see what can we do better. Um, Mary Ellen Connect asks, what are your thoughts about the second wave of COVID and how, what are some of the inside uh, planning that you guys are doing, if, if so? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's never stopped. Our COVID um, uh, meetings um, occur every week, several times a week, and several of us are on additional committees. We 
you know, I mentioned we stood up that that drive-through over on Quincy Street. We we were doing about 150 patients a day, and in June, or I should say May 1st, I believe was the date that Governor Northam allowed hospitals to start doing elective surgeries again. And we, on May 1st, were doing elective surgeries, so um, we had to get employees back to the hospital. Is what I'm trying to say. So I had OR nurses, cath lab nurses over there with me, amazing folks. And so we had to hand that off to Quest. What we're looking at now is, is planning to open up another drive-through. Quest is still over there, and they're actually planning to do flu testing as well as their COVID testing. Um, uh, I believe they're still doing the uh, the non-rapid test. So we're, we're looking to open up uh, a rapid testing site. And I don't have a date on that right now. But on top of that, we've been collecting and keeping high um, stock of uh, the rapid Abbott testing that we have on site, the machines for, as well as PPE to make sure we're prepared and, um, and, and just staying very close in communication with the, the county health department and, um, and following the, the, the proper procedures. So I think we've seen no patient to employee transmission of COVID. What we have seen is community spread. We've seen employees who go out, travel because they have to, you know, you know if there's family members that are sick. We have seen some of that, and I think that's what a lot of the, the nation and the world are seeing right now, and it's trying to remind people that, hey, we're not past this yet, so try to you know stay isolated. Um, a couple of questions r- related to the uh, MyAIDEN platform, and um, one is, does assisted living or memory care need to enroll in MyAIDEN, and then um, what can home care providers do to convert more referrals through my Aiden. And one of the things, James, that I think might be valuable is, is that if if you can give me a contact at uh at my Aiden, maybe we could do another um webinar just like this one that dives into that platform a little more. Yeah, yeah. And I and and I, at this point I think I'd be comfortable doing it too. But uh the sh- the quick answer is yeah, assisted living is is part of that. So when we make referrals to assisted living, they go out through aid and the you know, I mentioned the Tuesdays at 9 30 is when I sit down and I go over outcomes because I uh when when a patient comes into the hospital and they need home health care, the aid and system, which is sitting on top of Epic. So it's getting a lot of data out of there. It automatically filters it to the payer. So we'll use skilled care to start with. So Medicare commercials, it's only going to immediately capture those in-network agencies. So it's not going to put agencies in front of a patient that's out of network because we know our patients don't want to pay out of network rates. And then the case manager does some very, very limited filtering, if you will, but it's specific to the modality. And I'll use the extreme of a vented patient. So if a, if a patient's on a, a ventilator and they're going home, uh, let me, let's say, uh, you know, an ALS patient or they're going to a facility, we're going to check the box that says, hey, patient needs vent support, which is, auto, you know, going to limit that list down to agencies and facilities that specialize in vent training. Now, a more a more common filter might be aggressive wound care, IV antibiotics, PTOT, and you as the the partner in the community, you can you control all of that. You control which payers that Aiden believes you had, and which modalities you have. You build your own profile. You have your own marketing piece. Again, this is all free. And so, when we make those check boxes, we're left with on average about eighteen to twenty four home care agencies. And our message to the patient is no longer, hey, pick three. It's, hey, are there any agencies you wouldn't want us to contact? And so then we send it out to all of them if the patient gives consent. And we set a timer. And at the end of that timer, whoever's responded gets presented to the patient. And so on average, about 12 to 15 are on that list when it goes in front of the patient. And what the patient sees is a list and, the, and every agency is ranked top to bottom on their Medicare star ranking, which is you know, updated quarterly by Medicare, and it is an Aiden. Their patient satisfaction score and their readmission score. And Aiden does all that tracking as well. And I can uh, you know, go into detail about how they do that. But to answer the question about how a home care agency gets more referrals, it, it, you know, my message is you know, we don't need sandwiches or pencils. And I mean that in the nicest way. Yep. We need we need the care invested in the patient. And, and a good example, 
when we turned up um, Aiden on about four years ago, there was an agency we'd never heard of, had a poor marketing presence here. They had five stars. They have been rocking it since we turned the system on. They are our number one provider because uh, they do amazing care. The, the feedback we get from our patients, the, the Medicare star rankings, a solid five, they're doing amazing. So those conversations I have on Tuesday are very valuable and, and they're, they're, we're able to talk about outcomes and say, well, hey, here's how many referrals you got. Here's what your stars are. Let's talk about how we can help with readmissions and patient satisfaction. And, and, and there are some things we can do. But it, it's all about quality at this point, and that's the way healthcare has been going for years. Great. Um, let's see. Laura Vucci says, if and when vendors are allowed back in the hospital, what do you think it will look like? Will we need? Will they need to be vaccinated? Will they need to wear a PPE to walk around? Uh, well, at Virginia Hospital Center, we we've always had the. Uh, the position of we don't want people coming into the hospital, even pre COVID unless they have a patient here, you're more than welcome to come, you know, see your patient. And, and, you know, if you're in the building, you know, that's fine, but we don't want people going to the case managers to run the unit because I, I believe in equity. So if, if I'm going to let one agency liaison talk to the case managers, everyone has to have access. And, in our region, it's dense, right? So there's, they wouldn't get any work done, but you know, that's the short of it. So we, um, we strongly encourage folks to, you know, focus on the quality aspects. That's, that's what matters to the patients. And, um, in terms of immunizations, if, um, if someone's coming in and they're going to be going to the bedside, we require them to go through our uh, onboarding process and absolutely TV testing, background checks, all that's to be done before someone can get a paper badge to come in and, and uh, round on our units. Great. Okay. And we got about five minutes till one. Um, James, you're still okay hanging on while we try to get through as many of these questions as we can. We got about 10, a 10 sure. remaining. Okay, yep. great. Okay. Um, Mary Beth Rizio says, what is the caseload for each of your case managers at VHC? I'm amazed you have a 30 member team, which seems to be unheard of with other hospitals in the DMV. Yeah, we're um, one case manager to, to 15 patients and we, we've got a unique situation, but I've done a lot in the last three years from a staffing perspective um, because the technology is presenting itself and, and, so an example is with utilization review. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, traditionally done by nurses, utilization review is required you know, by CMS and it's also necessary to get paid. So if I come into the hospital, I have Care First insurance, someone has to notify Care First within 24 hours of my admission to the hospital. They also have to provide ongoing clinical updates, get authorizations, fight appeals, and that's starts through admission, goes through discharge. And that and that's what case does, the things we do. Um, I purchased uh, an artificial intelligence program called Exalis about a year ago. We've been using it since October of last year. And it automates a lot of the utilization review. So from a staffing yeah. perspective, to answer your question, it allows a smaller group of our nurses. I mentioned we allow four of our nurses every week. They're in color-coded teams to work from home. Four nurses can knock out the whole hospitals you are from home, um, whereas without having that product, that wasn't possible. We had most of our nurses doing utilization review every day, and so that was less team members at the bedside doing discharge planning. So while there's a job satisfaction component for sure for the nurses, they love that they can work a week from home or a week wherever they want to go. It also puts more of our members at the bedside, breaking up that census, so we have more people all in here during every week, every day, doing discharge planning, which allows us to break that that uh, that ratio down. And um, and Aiden, which is all electronic, you know, makes it so easy to send out referrals. It's we, we've taken a lot of steps to to make the job easier for our staff and cut out uh, non value added time. Wow, man, some great technology that you're utilizing there. Um, Jennifer Brown says under COVID, CMS relaxed the re requirement for a three night inpatient hospital stay to qualify for Medicare 
covered SNF admissions. Are you making these referrals into SNFs without the 72 hour inpatient stays? Any feedback on the reality of Medicare reimbursement to the SNFs? Um, I mean, well, in terms, you know, to answer that backwards, I mean, CMS is going to have to make those payments. I can't see how they wouldn't. Um, be, and, and, and maybe more so than before, because I think the essence of that emergency rule change was, you know, one, they needed to free up beds. They wanted people out of the hospitals to, you know, keep them from being exposed. Now, the nursing homes have their own challenges, but they needed to free up acute beds. So, you know, whether they audit for medical necessity or not, I think part of the essence of that rule change was, hey, let's get these folks out. Let's get them to a safe place. So, um, you know, I can't speak on what that'll look like, but I can't imagine that, you know. Now, uh, yeah, we have we have taken advantage of it. My personal opinion on the, uh, the, the three-night stay, um, you know, over the years has been pretty, pretty, uh, consistent. And that is, I don't find it, um, you know, a great, great way to measure whether somebody needs to be in a rehab or not. And we, we know that, um, the managed care companies, the managed Medicare companies have, uh, a lot more options. Meaning if a patient presents to our ER with a hip fracture, a pelvic fracture, and I say that because there's, you know, there's been a long ongoing class action lawsuit against CMS for years. Uh, an elderly patient comes in with a pelvic fracture that happens three to five times a week here. Surgery comes down, takes a look at them, says, you know, they're not a candidate for surgery for whatever reason. They're not going to take them to surgery, so they're not going to meet inpatient criteria. They'll never have that three-night stay, yet they're in a bed, they're in pain, and, the, you know, the surgeon's saying, you know, uh, weight bearing is tolerated, advanced therapy is tolerated, and that's easy to say, but, you know, um, when someone has no one or, or has Medicaid, that's tough. So the managed care companies, I think, have done it well. We get them out of the ER. And so with this three-night relaxed rule, we're doing the same thing. We're just getting them there when we need to. But again, our our, our SNF disposition rate is low. It, it's a, I think I mentioned about 11%. And, and it, it got much lower during COVID because the SNFs weren't open. So while we have taken advantage of it, it's not something that um, – we we use just for the sake of using it. Um, I'm going to try to do three questions at once here from Heidi, Mark, and Ada, and it all relates to home care. Um, you had uh, referenced, you know, home is the discharge. Some clarification: Are you is that skilled reimbursed home care the majority or uh, private duty companion? Um, unskilled uh, care. And then let's see. Yeah, they were wondering, uh, they were wondering that, do you refer to uh, private duty or is it primarily the reimbursed home care? Um, it, it, it's, you know, we're, we're shifting to the outpatient. So getting people into outpatient therapy gyms, if they can tolerate it. So that would be a non-homebound setting. Um, but mainly the skilled at home, uh, Medicare commercial reimbursed. A lot of the conversations I have on those Tuesday mornings are with our private duty partners. And I think a lot of them will tell you the same thing that I'm often telling them that I, I, I have a hard time getting buy-in that I think I, I'd like to have from patients or families that I think need the private duty. I think cost is a factor, uh, even in North Arlington where people tend to have some, you know, expendable resources. Um, and, and that's something I wish I could say we, we had more success with, with, uh, coordinating, um, if, if, um, and so that's, yeah, it's mainly skilled. Yeah. Anytime we've done these case management panels, what, what has always sort of come out of it is, is that if a case manager has to have a conversation about the cost of something, it just is like a big speed bump in the conversation. And so, what you guys have always sort of shared is, is that oftentimes the first discharge is to somewhere that is reimbursed, albeit it could be short term, and that case managers are often saying, if you want to sort of connect with our discharges, go to the SNFs or go to the, the Medicaid skilled home care providers. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I've got stories, you know, galore where I will sit down with families and patients and sometimes I'll get their buy-in only to get, you know, three days later, the agency will call me and say, Oh, they got rid of us. And, and so there, there's more to it and I'm not the best at it. So I think yeah. you know, that's something that, yeah, I don't see enough buy-in on, but. Um, let's see. Catherine McCallum asks, uh, do you interact with volunteer groups like the villages that sort of support aging in place. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We, we, um, you know, we have uh, presentations that are given to our department. The villages have come by several times. I've done presentations for the villages. I've, um, you know, communicated with them. We probably do more work with, uh, the nonprofit volunteers like, you know, the Arlington free clinic, the homeless service centers, the addiction programs, the County, um, that's where we're seeing more of our, our engagement with volunteer groups. Um, are you recommending specific home monitoring devices? This is a great commercial for the Arlington life, uh, for the lifeline program, but, um, what are your thoughts on the future there in terms of, uh, you're obviously very technically savvy, but as you discharge, uh, people from the hospital, any sort of things that you're seeing in terms of tech that can keep people in their home safely? Yeah, well, I'll, um, I'll say that because I'm working closely with our, our uh, internal medicine providers, most notably Chris Walsh over the last six months. Well, I've worked with him for years. These last six months, we've done a lot of partnering around COVID and, and um, the, and patients are asking for more and more telehealth than they ever have before for obvious reasons. We're, we're implementing more portal-based care um, because of the pandemic. And so that is opening its door to a lot more technology, if you will, in the home. But the, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the products that we were seeing about 10 years ago, because it's been around for a while now, meaning like the, the home-based uh, scales or blood pressure cuffs or what have you that are, you know, communicating Wi-Fi to, to a hub. I was, I was surprised that those never really took off. Uh, I think there's a place for them and I'm sure, you know, technology is evolving as we speak. You know, some of the things I've told you that I've implemented, you know, they're going to be passed in the next three to five years. There, there's going to be something new and that's just the way our, our world is now. But I'm not aware of any any current technology other than the telehealth, which is huge right now, that's allowing us to um, make any big strides in our goals. Great. Um, we've got five, five more questions here. Um, Christy Kennedy just wanted to know about the uh, the timer on the MyAiden. Like, how long does that timer stay on? Yeah. So it's up to the case manager. My my message to my team is, hey you know, let's give these post-acute partners the, a fair opportunity to compete. And if we're, if we're engaging and, and we're doing what I expect us to do, which is starting discharge, planning that admission, interviewing and opening up that referral as soon as possible, it should be on average every tw for 24 hours. Now there's going to be situations, um, orthopedic surgeries are a good example. The emergency room is a good example where we're not going to have 24 hours you know, orthopedic surgeries starting next year are almost going to be non-existent in the hospital. And I'm talking about hips and knees. The, the Medicare is, is pretty much, um, you know, given the blessing to move those all to ambulatory service centers. Many providers have already done that, but we're expecting to see a huge shift next year here. But even those orthopedic surgeries that are done here today, they come in and they're out of here in, in 12 to 18 hours. So those are situations, the ER is another situation where we may only be able to set the timer for an hour, six hours. Um, that being said, Aiden can be loaded on your phone as an app, on your computer. And, and, and a lot of our partners respond on their phone like an app. They look at it, they get a text and boom, they respond. So it's very real time. It's, there's a texting function within Aiden, that's encrypted. That's that's how we communicate. We don't really use a phone anymore, which also saves our team members a lot of time. Great. And then um, let's see. Uh, Teresa Berger says, "I have a real problem in getting therapy notes to know where clients are. Any thoughts on how to improve receiving these notes or getting therapists to speak as speak with family members?" And this is obviously this is not specific to Virginia Hospital Center. This is just hospitals in general. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, if, if that's been a, if that's been an issue here, I definitely like to know about it, but I, I know from my experience in, in, um, you know, Sandy Austin's our director of, of therapy and, uh, she is amazing, but she and I have discussions about how we can improve. And we were doing that yesterday. We had a discussion about some things we thought we could do differently. I know for Virginia hospital center, our doctors, our hospitals team, who do 95% of the admissions in my case manager, they're heavily dependent on our physical and occupational therapists for recommendations. Uh, um, almost too much. Uh, and that's my conversation with Sandy, meaning if a therapist says, Hey, this patient can go home, this patient can go to a sniff or this patient needs to go to acute rehab. We often treat that as the, as the God honest truth and Bible. And we move that way. So for us, if we don't have a note in, we're often calling them to say, Hey, we need a recommendation before we can let this patient go before they're cleared. Getting those documents then out to the community for us is Aiden. It, it, it's pre populated into every referral. Um, so that's how you should begin it for us. Now there's a new federal law going into effect November 1st called the, um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to misname this, but I'll, I'll explain the gist of it. It's a, it's a law that, uh, a information blocking law is what it is. And the intent of the law is for hospitals, all healthcare providers for that matter, can no longer keep data from patients in a timely fashion, meaning um, inpatient or outpatient, when your lab results are available and there's an elect electronic portal, it has to go out immediately. It has to go even when you're an inpatient. If I'm an inpatient in a bed, the way the lawyers explained it to me this week, and my doctor sees me, goes out to the desk, does a progress note, is on the hour, every hour, it it sends it and I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to sit there in the bed and look in my my phone. Um, so so it's data is becoming more and more available to patients, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And for you as a provider, it should already be that way. If you're having challenges with your local provider, I would recommend reaching out to leadership in those teams to find a way to, to, to make that easier. Great. And um, just a few more. Uh, Dolores Athey says, with the flu coming, with the flu versus COVID coming, will rapid tests be available to patients coming through the ER? So home care providers know how to proceed with the appropriate level of precautions. Yeah, we, we've been doing rapid testing since day one. Anyone that comes into our ER, anyone that gets admitted to the hospital, well, I should clarify that anyone that presents with symptoms um, gets a rapid test. Anyone that gets admitted to the hospital is getting a rapid test. Uh, and, and there's other areas, pre-op surgery, everyone's getting a rapid test, uh, GI, cath lab, most, most areas of our hospitals, we, we have plenty of rapid tests on hand. So that's, that's not been an issue for us here. Okay. Got three more and then we're done. Um, Greg uh, asks, are you seeing any trends for remote patient monitoring solutions? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, like I mentioned, we're seeing a lot of telehealth being used in the internal medicine side, which is great because for a pandemic, you want to keep people out of the hot, you want to keep them at home, even out of the doctor's offices. So when we were having conversations with our ER doc leadership, our internal medicine, our infection prevention, we said, all right, with the flu coming and we're, we're optimistic, you know, hopefully we'll have a light flu season with everyone wearing masks. But regardless, you know, how are you going to treat that differential, right? You, you know, we're in flu season. You have someone that has flu-like symptoms. Is it flu? Is it a cold? Is it COVID? And so using telehealth has been huge for us. And because there's all these drive-through sites that limit exposure to everyone, that's been huge. We believe in containing uh, the spread, but also making it more convenient. I myself, um, I, I did a telehealth visit for an eye infection I had, uh, you know, I think three months wow. ago and I, I logged in and within an hour I had a, a, a telehealth visit and I didn't have to go in. He called in, you know, an antibiotic and, and I never left my office. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. It's really making uh, medicine way more efficient in certain settings. Um, okay. The last two, we've sort of addressed these, but this is just to reiterate. Um, can you explain and expand on the process how case managers provide patients with patient choice and when discharging? And that is the My Aiden system.
but I'll also sort of throw in a commercial for the Virginia Hospital Senior Resource Guide. So let's say somebody picks that up in the cafeteria and they flip it open and they've been reading an article on home care and they see a specific home care provider, they can say to their case manager, hey, I called these guys while you were working on my case and I, I'm, I'm thinking I'd like to use them, correct? Yeah, absolutely. That that uh, that resource, if I'm not mistaken, I'll let Kathy keep me honest here. Is is uh, been integrated to every admission packet. So you know, a patient gets admitted, it's in their 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 folder when they come in, and they have it there at the bedside with them. And that's a good. Uh, I'm going to bring Kathy and Kate on just to for closing remarks. The the last few questions, and I knew they'd all come in here. Um, and this one, I'm scared about James because I don't want you to be flooded. But um, Ada asks, can a private duty home care company become part of the Tuesday meeting? Uh, any rules of the road on that? No, they already are. Yeah, no, most of my okay. Tuesdays are private duties. So then yeah. just just reach out to you directly, correct? Or is there? Yeah, is there... Um, I have an administrative assistant. Um, and, Why don't you send me, if you send me the, what the steps you want people to go through to get on that meeting list, then I'll send it out to everybody. Yeah, yeah. don't send the email to James. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, or Kathy, if you've, got, if, if you've got yeah. the details on that, you can send that to me. Yeah, and, and just to go back to what James said, so with the Senior Resource Guide, I, I do want to get back up on, on that is, um, that senior resource guide is in the um, the lobby of the um, the main hospital, the main lobby. It's in the women in health. It's in our cafeteria. Um, the case uh, managers. It doesn't necessarily go in everyone's packet, but the case managers have it up on the units, and they are handing it out to families as a resource because what it has is. Um, unlike the, um, the the patient guide, the senior resource guide on the front has all sorts of information about the um, the hospital itself and the programs that may be of interest to seniors about the hospital. And then the second half is resources specific to the community. So it's not it's got information if you want it, right? You have to be in it um, on home health agencies, rehab facilities, assisted living. We have um, information on all the villages um, in there. We have a resource section um, on food delivery options on transportation options. So it's a really great guide, not just for seniors, but the, for their families, because it's on everything that they that they may need. Um, and then it's something certainly that, that Kate and I um, are handing out at community groups. Um, the other thing really quickly I wanted to mention is we do have a great program and we work really closely with our case managers on this called Safe Transition for Hospital Patients so that if any patient is being discharged home, um, they have the ability to get the Phillips Lifeline medical alert at no cost for their first two months home. Um, it's a great, we're so proud of this program because we, um, it's unique to Virginia Hospital and it's any patient um, who's discharged. And so a lot of times the um, case managers, if they know that a patient is going home, they live by themselves, um, they will refer. We have patients who have had one hip done on their surgery. They've got it for their two months. And then six months later, they're getting hip number two done. And, and uh, as soon as they get up on the unit, they're asking the case manager, oh yeah, I need that. I need it back for my second uh second hip. So, um, you know, James and I have both been at the hospital for a long time, and we will both tell you that we are super proud of our organization because as um, 
directors of departments, um, we really um, had the ability to go to our senior leaders with program ideas on how we feel we can um, make things better for not only our, our staff, but for the community. And they, they really, they listen to us and they trust our guidance and they really let us um, provide and institute different unique programs and services. Yeah, no, this I, is great. Could I put in a plug uh, for ACEBAN, the Arlington Street People's Assistance Network? Also, it's uh, again in that homeless services center. Uh, it's amazing. I'd love to show, give people a tour of the place. It's it's amazing, and, and Betsy would kill me if I didn't say it. Okay, <laughs> and actually, I just, I just, it's ACEBAN, right? It's ACEBAN.org. Yeah, um, I just, uh, I just found it, and I'm putting it in, um, I'm putting it in the chat. And, and I, I, I'm going to do one last question here because it sounds like a provider that may have used the system. Um, Aziz says, when we have a patient we got from Aiden, how do we notify case management of discharge and possibly unsafe discharge from private duty? Um, yeah, you... I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand the, the question. Okay. If, um, if, if, uh, if I, if a patient goes home to you, meaning you've received the patient through Aiden and, you know, you're suggesting that maybe the home environment's unsafe. And so we talk about, you know, abuse, neglect, exploitation. We expect that you guys are reporting, right? So most of the partners we work with are licensed professionals and you're mandated reporter at that point. So you need to call adult protective services, child protective services, the police, whatever the concern is. Okay. I'm always here to help let us know, but you have a duty to report. Okay, good, good. Great way to close. I knew this was going to go long. I really appreciate you uh, staying on and getting all the questions answered, James. And um, Kathy and Kate, uh, thank you for bringing them to us. And uh, um, we look forward to following up with everybody. I will get the follow-up out here in the next day or so. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Okay. Great. Thank you, James. Thank you, Steve.